Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Welcome to Last Drinks. Let's get stuck into a chat, shall we? So joining me on the podcast this week is Sarah Rusbatch. She's a certified women's health and wellbeing coach an accredited grey area drinking coach and a keynote speaker who shares so passionately about her journey to sobriety and the impact of alcohol on mental health. She has a global audience and she's also the face behind Perth's growing alcohol-free movement. Sarah had a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. She made a decision to remove alcohol from her life in early 2019 and she has never looked back. She has so much wisdom to share, and she completely has committed her days to helping other people find their sobriety. So, of course, the first question I have, Sarah Rosbach, is can you please tell me about your last drink? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this question. I haven't been asked this before, actually. So my last drink was the 27th of April, 2019. And I knew that that would be my last drink. And the funny thing was that I had planned a massive boozy night thinking this will be, this is going to be my last night. This is my last hurrah. I had my hair and makeup done. I had everything done. It was a friend's 40th. Everything was planned for the day after. And do you know what? I had a few drinks and then I went home at 10 o'clock and I didn't have the big hurrah that I thought I would have. But isn't that so interesting, Sarah, how even like subconsciously alcohol is like, it's such a relationship when you're in it that you're like, I need to send it off with like a big farewell. You know, it's like, it's like sending a loved one off overseas on a gap year. You'd have a big farewell for them. And, And it's funny how like psychologically we need to like, send alcohol off out of our lives. So what were the events leading up to this moment where you were like, yep, this is the night, we're done? So I had taken a break from alcohol back in 2017 and that was the first time I'd taken a break. Up until then, um, my drinking had always been quite extensive. I always drank a lot. I was always the first one to get the drink started. I was always the last one to leave the party. I was always the one that was the first to crack open the wine at any occasion. Mm. But like through my 20s and stuff, that just wasn't really that problematic for me. It was something that everyone else did. I surrounded myself with other people that loved drinking the way that I did. So yeah. that um, I'm, yeah, that's what we do, right? So um, I had the hedonistic party lifestyle in London. Um, this was back in the 90s. It was sex in the city era. I can be channel my inner Samantha and I can go and have my Cosmos in rooftop bars and one night stands and doing all of that kind of stuff racing around the the clubs and bars of London and then I got married had a baby moved to Australia and 
those three things made and just impacted me in such a huge way. Um, we got to Australia and I got pregnant again straight away. And so then I had two very little, uh, a baby and an 18 month old. Oh, wow. Wow. Two under two. Two under two is um, not to be underestimated for the impact that it has on your physical and mental health. Absolutely. Um, and I, I had no friends. I had no family. I was lonely. I'd had a very high-flying, successful career, and I wasn't working anymore. I was at home singing nursery rhymes, cleaning up baby sick, pureeing carrot, and kind of wondering what was going on in my life. And I then that's when alcohol changed for me. That's when alcohol became a crutch. That's when alcohol became something that I was looking forward to. I was so homesick. Like, I didn't realize it at the time. Like, outside, and that's the whole thing is, right, we put this brave face on. People would say to me, how are you? I'm fine. Everything's fine. How are the kids? They're great. Yeah. Oh, you're so lucky. Totally. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Look at me. I live by the beach. I get to go swimming every day. And I get to have my cappuccinos at the beach and watch the sunrise. And um, and I was the queen of I'm fine and pretending to everyone that life in Australia was exactly what I wanted it to be. But it wasn't. I was really lonely and I was really homesick and I really struggled to meet people. And looking back, the way that I'd always met people in most parts of my life had been with alcohol. Drinking. So, you know, like you go to uni and you, um, you know, Freshers Week in the UK is massive. You just get drunk for a week and um, and that's how you make friends. Yeah. I moved to London and my first job in London was in recruitment where there were four rounds of interview and the fourth interview was in the pub doing shots of Sambuca to make sure you could hold your booze. So that was my interview wow. process. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. When you you know, hit your corporate stride and it's really important because it's a part of your identity, what we do. I've only been reflecting on this lately, Sarah, where I'm trying to be really conscious to not ask my child what he wants to do when he grows up because a lot of people do like, he's only three and a half, mind you, but what do you think he's going to do when he grows up? I'm like, don't know. And so long as he's uh, really content, functioning, healthy, happy human being, that's the priority because we put all this pressure on kids to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their lives when they're nine and it's like no wonder our identity gets caught up in what we do and then we stop doing that and we become a mum and it's like no wonder everything goes haywire in our brain, you know, and so it's just really interesting that like you're hitting your corporate stride, you've got to keep up with the Sam Booker shots or like – because somehow that's a badge of honour. And then you're in this fast-paced world and it gets so out of hand. And it's not until you rip on the handbrake and do something different, like get married, move to Australia and have a couple of kids, that you go, oh, shoot, I can't function without this thing now. Exactly, exactly. It had become so ingrained in such a subtle, insidious way of not even realising how ingrained it was because you're just doing it without thinking and everyone around you is doing it without thinking. And you're just in this mess of just trying to work out who you are in your twenties and your thirties and, you know, and, and all of those things. And so it was, it's a real, I think they need to teach this stuff at school, never mind algebra and like all of that. We need to understand, you know, how to process emotions, how to oh ma- manage when adversity comes, you you're know, all of this stuff. On. 
spot yeah. on. Like, so you're, so you said there was a switch, like you've got these two young kids and you're, you're telling everyone that life is fine, you're very lonely. And then all of a sudden alcohol becomes, does it become your friend? Cause it gives, it offers you company and comfort and escapism and all the things that you need when you have like two little tiny kids at home. Totally. Absolutely. It became my friend. It became something I looked forward to. It became something that if I couldn't have it, I was really, really cross and grumpy. It became something that, you know, I would drink as soon as my husband would get home from work. I remember I would be standing in the driveway with tears streaming down my face, Mm. holding a baby and holding and having a toddler at my knees. And I would watch my husband's truck pull into the road and I would just have this sigh of relief. I'd pass him the kids and I would go inside and pour myself a drink. And that's kind of, that's the depths of, of where I was at. And, and, you know, fast forward over the next few years, again, didn't ever think that this was problematic. Because again, the marketing by big alcohol to women is you deserve your wine. You've had a hard day. Um, all the baby grows with, I'm the reason my mum drinks wine. Like it is targeted at us in such a, a subtle way that makes us laugh about it and makes us think it's funny. But at the same time, no one needed to tell me twice that I deserved that glass of wine at the end of the day. You know, I fell for that hook, line and sinker. And what the truth of the matter is, is that you deserve so much more, especially as, you know, a busy mom. It's the hardest job in the world. The pay is terrible. The demands from the boss, you know, which is the child, which is outrageous. Um, But you sign up for love. And what I think that, that broken promise is, is like it's really hard You've had zero adult interaction conversation today because you're in the parenting trenches doing nappies and nursery rhymes and sleeps and all of the things. And so, yeah, here's something that you deserve. But the problem with that message is that alcohol is a poison. It's toxic. It's highly addictive. And so what you are essentially doing is saying to somebody, this is going to solve your problems. It's going to cause you a whole lot of other problems. But for right now, it'll give you the relief. And I think like what mums need is support, not relief, you know. And and I feel like because I understand like I've got a little one. It's chaos. It's it's so hectic. Like you have the weirdest conversations. Like we lost Slothy the other day and I nearly had a meltdown. I'm like Slothy is this tiny toy sloth and it's my little one's best friend. And if Slothy, we couldn't find him. We left him at daycare. It was like. It was it was like catastrophic at home. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you're like you're in this world that's so weird and you do need relief, but you, more than relief that a, a drink can offer you, we need support and we need to have the space to go, this is really tough and I just, I need a hug, I need a break, I need some help. But those things are way, way more beneficial than a drink at the end of the day. But there's no messaging around that right now. All the messaging is like, get it in a pink bottle because it's pretty, you know? Yeah, totally. And there's, and people are just not honest. You know, no. everyone looks like they've got their stuff together. And so you feel like you're failing if you're not finding that motherhood is this joyful, wonderful thing. And of course it's that, but it's also really hard. And I don't think there's enough people out there talking about how hard it is and how mm. hard it is to switch from 
being incredibly independent, maybe successful in your career and, and doing all of that to suddenly being at home. And, you know, I used to have to make myself to-do lists just so I had a sense of achievement because yes. I've hung the washing out and I've brushed my teeth. And just to be able to cross things off gave me that sense of yeah. achievement, which used to be, yeah, I nailed that $1 million client. And yes, I did, you know, like Seriously. I still did it in that same way. Yeah. I remember too, and I think that this is a part of that narrative is the societal expectations. So I remember um, we used to go to church and um, when my little one was really, like he was probably a couple of weeks old and we went to church and, you know, you show the baby off, we had this baby and here's the baby and and they, and they do this thing at church. We don't go anymore, but we do, they do this thing at church where they're like, oh, turn around and say hi to the person behind you or next to you. And, and oh, I always find it super awkward because I'm actually an introvert and I really hate small talk. So I used to hate that bit. So what happened is we turn around and this guy's like, hey, like, hi, I'm whoever. I'm like, hi, Maz. And he's like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I just like, this is my four-week-old baby, Henry. And he's like, oh, yeah. So like, so what do you do? And like, I just grew and birthed a human being. And you are asking me what else? <laughs> yeah. Like how many children did you grow in your body and birth out of your body? And it was the most, like, I was so upset because I was like, I just feel so invisible right now that I have done the most amazing thing in life, like miracle birth. And you're trying to tell me that that's not enough, that I need, yeah. like, so when are you going back to work? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the job now is to, like, keep yeah. this thing alive. Like, it was so insane. And this whole idea of, like, oh, sure, you had a baby, but, like, whatever. Um, so what yeah. else do you do? It's like, there's, yeah. dude, there's no room for anything else right now because I'm keeping a human on the planet. And I just remember that moment and it really stuck with me because I was like, God, I never want to make someone feel like that when they, yeah. when they switched over into the parenting trenches. And some women love it, some women hate it, and some yeah. men love it and some men hate it. But it's a part yeah. of what we do when we, when we tap into family life. And I think that that narrative has to change. It's like, Oh, so is that all? Like, what's so hard about staying at home with a couple of kids? Like, are you kidding? It's the dream. Well, for some people, it's actually a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard. Like, it is blooming hard. And yeah. no one, nothing really quite prepares you for how hard it is. And for me, because alcohol had always been so prevalent in my life, um, it was the immediate response that I had was just turn to alcohol. Just, yeah. get, just get a drink and then you'll feel better. And but then so you that don't. Was what I did. Yeah, like you, you, you do, and then you don't. And then at what point? Exactly. What what point for you, Sarah? Are you like, well, now this isn't working for me. It was again really slow. It was really really subtle. It was really discreet. That kind of build up, but all slowly but surely, I started to notice um, anxiety was really bad. I'd never had anxiety in my life, and all of a sudden. I was feeling quite anxious quite a lot. I was worrying about what I'd said and done. I was doubting myself. At this point, I had set up my own recruitment business. And there would be some days where I would get up, take the kids to school, and I would come back. And because I worked for myself, I could do what I wanted. And I was so hungover, I'd just get back into bed and I'd play Candy Crush all day until it was time to pick the kids up. Like that was the depth of, and I'm a motivated, driven person. So mm -hmm. for me to be in bed with the curtains drawn on a beautiful, hot, sunny day playing Candy Crush, was the epitome of the lowest of low for me. 
So I'd gone to my GP and I said to her, I'm, I, my mental health is really suffering. I've got really bad anxiety. Um, I feel like I'm a shell of myself. Wow. And I was crying. And at no point did she ask me, how much are you drinking? Alcohol didn't even come up in the conversation. Mm. Um, she gave me a prescription for some anti-anxiety tablets. And I didn't take them, but I was reaching the point of getting closer and closer. I didn't know it at the time. To, to taking that break from alcohol. And then I had two things happen in quick succession. One was I'd gone to a friend's 40th and I got very, very drunk and I'd gone outside to um, have a cigarette and I was wearing high heels and I crouched down to put out my cigarette, but because I was quite pissed, I fell forward and toppled forward onto the concrete driveway and I had no reflexes. And so I didn't put my hands out and I landed on my face. Ouch. So I smashed my nose, I smashed my lips, there was blood. Um, and I got taken home and I passed out and I woke up the next morning to my five-year-old daughter standing on the side of the bed. And she said to me, mommy, what happened to your face? And you know that moment where yeah. you just come to and for a split second, you're oblivious to the shame and the regret and the circumstances. And then suddenly it hits you and it's like someone's punched you in the stomach. And it was just the shame that I felt in that moment mm. was horrendous. But I still carried on drinking. And the next two weeks later, I had a friend, uh, another 40th, and I'd gone out to a all you can drink afternoon tea, you know, those free flowing bubbles for three hours for $50. We started drinking. <laughs> I at 12. call those afternoon Long Island iced teas. <laughs> yeah. So it started at 12, <laughs> yeah. and I got home at two the next morning. So 14 hours of drinking champagne. Wow. Um, and the next morning, I had to take my son to cricket. He was stood at the end of my bed with his cricket gear on. And I was over the limit. Couldn't drive. I knew. I knew. I woke up and I was shaking. Yeah. Like I had the real tremors. Um, yeah. And I didn't feel right. And I was like, there's no way I can get behind the wheel. Yeah. And my husband was out on a boys fishing trip. So I, my son only had me to take him to cricket and I couldn't do it. I was too ashamed to phone another mum to, to come and take William because yeah. then I had to say I'm still pissed at eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So yeah. William didn't get to go. And mm. that was the moment. Um, yeah. And that day I was scrolling Facebook and someone had posted in my running group because here's the thing. I was running half marathons. I was on the outside. My drinking was not a problem. I could still run a half marathon. So therefore I couldn't have a problem with alcohol. Yeah. And someone in my running group had posted the Annie Grace book. They'd read This Naked Mind and it had changed their relationship with alcohol. So I read the book and I intended to do 21 days off and I did 100. Wow. I just was like, Wow. No, it's pretty amazing. Like, this is this was the first time, Les, that I'd met the version of me that didn't drink. Yeah. And I had thought that she would be boring and never have fun, but my goodness, she was so happy. I love she that. was content and positive and happy and clear headed. And it was like this this curtain had lifted in my mind. But it got to a hundred days and I was like, Oh yeah, but I can't never drink again. That would just be weird. <laughs> like, because I am Sarah the party girl. Like, I can't never drink again. So I was like, but it's fine. I've done 100 days. So now I'll be able to moderate. Now I'll no. be a normal drinker. <laughs> so yeah. you know how this is going to end, don't yes, you? So, I know the story. Yeah. So went back to drinking. And funnily enough, moderation didn't work for me. Within two weeks, I was back to drinking the same amount as before. So what followed was two years 
of being stuck in the cycle of taking breaks, going back to drinking, trying to moderate, never being able to, always drinking too much. And then in the March 2019, I set that date for the 27th of April 2019 because I had a friend's 40th that night. So that was going to be my last hurrah. And, and I just knew that that was going to be it. I yeah. just knew because I tried for two years. I tried. I was like, how many more times do you need to keep failing at this moderation before you yeah. finally realize it's not about willpower? It's not about you needing to be stronger or you needing to, to try harder. It's about the fact that your neurochemistry and your um, the way that you're wired is that you're never going to want moderation. And I was like, I love the version of me that doesn't drink. So yeah. why do I keep doing the thing that stops me from being that version of me? So it all fell into place eventually. It's quite the story. Oprah Winfrey talks about, I love Oprah. Oh, me Lord. too. She's just, she's gold. So she talks about um, like the universe talks to us in whispers. And I love this. And it's kind of like, it's sort of, I think you'll understand why I love this because she says, the universe will, when it's trying to like nudge you a little bit, it'll just, it's like, imagine you're just standing at the edge of a lake and it just drops like a tiny grain of sand in the water and there's this teeny tiny ripple. And then if it doesn't get your attention, it just upgrades it slightly to like a tiny stone and then it pops that in the water. And then you see, if you don't catch the ripple, then it becomes a rock. And if you don't catch the rock, it's a brick. And eventually the whole wall comes crashing down. And it feels like for you, like there were those little, like looking back, there were those little nudges of like, hey, this isn't working. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't your best self. There's, there's more here for you. There's a better version of you, Sarah. She's in there somewhere. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and it's not, you're so right. It is not about strength and willpower. Like park that. It is just about the fact that alcohol does not work for us. <laughs> it's got yeah. nothing to do with your willpower. It is a clean cut decision. I'm not drinking. End of story. And when people say to me, because I wrestled with this when I was looking at sobriety, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so hard. It's actually really simple. You just don't drink. Yeah. It, it's just, a, it is all you have to do is say, I'm not drinking today, regardless of what happens, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, whether you have the best day of your life or your best friend dies. Whatever happens, alcohol is not going to improve or change your situation ever. You will just wake up and you get faced with this like horrible nightmare all over again, right? But I love this idea that because I think this is really key for someone who's listening who's maybe dancing around this moderation piece where they're like, oh, you know, I have a month off, so I'm fine, and then I get back on and I'm not fine. And, that and that's exhausting. But, like, if you listen to the universe, like, what are those little tiny nudges? And if you can actually get it then, it doesn't have to be this catastrophic shame show. It doesn't have yeah. to end up being this really big, super dramatic over the top catalyst. And I know that that is a lot of people's stories and that's okay because when you get there, you get there and however you get there is okay so long as you get there. But it doesn't have to be like that. And if you yeah. look back, like I know for me, I can see, I'm like, oh, my God, like let's go back 10 years before I quit drinking. And there were those <laughs> subtle little nudges like this isn't good for you. This isn't your best self. You're worth more. You deserve better. 
you know, and I just yeah. really wanted to, I feel like it's so um, important out of your story to really highlight that. There were these key moments along the way and for whatever reason, we ignore them. But this is me saying if that's the universe talking to you in a whisper, all you have to do is listen. And as much as it's terrifying to think about, I don't have the willpower, I don't have the motivation, it's got nothing to do with, I'm not motivated to be sober. I just don't drink alcohol. Do you know what I mean? Like that that's such a different headspace to come to sobriety in where it's not this, I know it's challenging, but it really does come down to the simplicity of a singular choice in every moment to not go to alcohol, to find another thing that works. So with that said, what are the things that work for you in sobriety? Because you were saying how like alcohol became your friend until it was like your enemy. (laughs) And so what are the things that work for you to make you feel seen and, and valued? And what are the things that do keep you company now? The biggest thing for me was always connection and looking back and I've done a hell of a lot of work on myself since quitting drinking three and a half years ago. But looking back, alcohol was a segue to me to fast track connection. That was why I loved it. I'm a girl's girl. I love having time with girls. So to me, to get to that place of, I love you, you're my best friend, come and tell me all your secrets. That was where I wanted to be. And alcohol gave me that really quickly. Um, I had, by the time I was 13, I'd been to five different schools. So I had always been the new girl. I'd always been the one having to fit in, having to break into new friendship groups. Mm. And alcohol made me feel like we were all equal. I wasn't the new girl anymore. I was the one that um, that was, you know, as, as accepted as everybody else. So what I realized when I quit drinking was um, connections really, really important to me. So it was about making sure that I'm still spending time with people that I love spending time with, um, but doing different things. It was being in a community of other women who were ditching booze or had already ditched booze because they were the shining light. And there are some incredible women who held my hand and took me through that, um, who were in like Facebook community groups that I that I was in. And I became incredibly close to those women. I went into therapy. I unpacked quite a lot of childhood stuff that I just needed to let go of. And I needed to understand myself a little bit more mm-hmm. so that I could understand, well, this triggers me. This is why it triggers me. But I'm prepared for that now. I know why it might happen. And here are some other things in my toolkit outside of just opening a bottle of wine. Mm. I then kept that open mind of being open to trying new things and being curious and kind of seeing it as this experiment of going, well, alcohol's not featuring in my life anymore. So if I'm taking alcohol out, what am I adding in? And what I was adding in was trying loads of new things. It was, I set up a new business. I retrained as a gray area drinking coach. I now work with women all over the world to help them um, with their alcohol consumption. I'm a keynote speaker. I've spoken on stages in front of hundreds of people. Like I've just embraced this different way of doing life. I love reading. I love learning. I love breath work. I love ice baths. I love saunas and hiking. And, And it's just been about, well, who am I and what do I love? Because if you'd asked me back in the day when I was drinking, what are your hobbies I'd have kind of looked at you really confused and kind of been like hobbies what are these hobbies you speak of Um, well I like socializing that's my hobby it's interesting too because I think a lot of for me the sobriety bit is about self-awareness because I think a lot of people get stuck in this trap with alcohol without realizing even who they are and what works for them so for me just to share a bit of my story Sarah 
I've always worked in media and in the broadcast space and I'm a very good communicator and I have a really big personality. So people assume I'm an extrovert. I am a hardcore introvert. I did not realise this about myself until I was in my 30s. So I spent my whole life battling social anxiety because I would have all this pressure to like be out and, you know, or be like communicate or be that person or grab the microphone or do the big personality bit because you're on the radio or you're on television and you've got the personality when internally all I wanted to do was to go home and have a hot water bottle and a good night's sleep because that actually was the thing that filled me up. And I did not realise that until I came really close to sort of stopping drinking. I was like, people say I'm an extrovert, but I actually, like I did one of those introvert, extrovert online quizzes and I'm like, I'm an introvert? Like, I hate people. I don't hate people, but do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like you. I'm not so, like, I can be social, but I don't like small talk. And so I would drink because the anxiety of being this extroverted person was so overwhelming. The alcohol helped. The alcohol was like, oh. And so that for me was how I sort of navigated life with alcohol and this anxiety hand in hand. But then I'd get really drunk, do really silly things, wake up the next day with more anxiety. It was just this whole nightmare. And what I've realized now is that as like an extroverted introvert, quality time at home um, and like space away from people is how I reset and how I get good enough to come into this space and perform as a job, which is what I do for a living. And when you figure that out about yourself, God, it's a relief. Because I could then finally go, oh, my God, I'm not this thing. I don't have to do this thing. I can just yeah. I can just be me and not have to drink to, like, uphold everyone else's expectation of me. I can just find other ways to fulfill what needs fulfilling in my life, which is a reset, which is quiet time, which is yeah. meditation, which is a walk on a beach, which is alone time and quietness. And then I can tap back into the madness. So it's just interesting how... Even though I think like socially we have really different expressions, we both fell into the same trap. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I would say about half of the women that I work with discover that they are introverts yeah. and that they were drinking simply because of social anxiety. Um, and that they had this, then they create this persona that everyone expects them to live up to all the time. And or you get that feedback, you're so fun when you're drunk. So when yes. you keep hearing that, you keep thinking, well, I've got to keep drinking because that's what makes people like me. And we all want to be liked and loved, right? So we yeah. do the thing that we think is going to please others. And then we, we do that at the detriment of ourselves. So what would you say to someone who's listening to this who was like, oh, light bulb moment, this is me. I, I've come to this place where I am that person. The expectation is that I drink. I'm more fun when I drink. This is the feedback I'm getting. Like what is a practical step? How can someone sort of like shift gear into like from that place to assessing their relationship with alcohol and doing something to change it? Well, even having that that light bulb moment in that moment is, is a moment of awareness, right? And then we've got to sit there and go, well, who is this pleasing when I do the drinking and take on this persona? Is this what I want or am I doing it for other people? And how is it serving me if I'm doing it for other people? So then it's about going, okay, so, and I say to everyone when they stop drinking to begin with, it's about seeing it as an experiment. 
It's yes. not about saying I'm never drinking again. It's seeing it as this experiment of going, well, who am I without alcohol? Do I sleep better? Am I happier? Do I have more energy? Do I have deeper relationships? Do I love myself more? Do I have a more positive mindset? Do I do more interesting things? Like, see, give it yourself that experiment to take that time off booze and, and be curious without judgment and just notice what changes in your life. And then you've got that, that information to be able to go, so which version of my life do I like better? Because the fact of the matter is that most people will never take a long enough break from alcohol to really ever know what their full potential is without it. Yeah, and I think the knock-on benefits, like they really do compound over time. So like, you know, your first month off booze, you will probably feel those physical benefits where you feel clear-headed, you can sleep better. As you mentioned, you're making better eating choices. Maybe you started exercising more. So those endorphins are kicking in. The serotonin levels are good, right? But then like you get two, three years in and it's a whole different level of benefits. And then you get like, I'm nearly eight years in and I'm still exploring and discovering these incredible benefits from not having any alcohol in my system. And it's this like, I call it the progressive revelation of sobriety, where it's not like after six months, that's what it is. You can't put it in a box and and go, this is what it's going to be for you. But what I can say is that it's this like exploration that's endless if you are willing to go down the path endlessly without judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is that I see that most people, when they remove alcohol, they fall into two camps. And there are people that just embrace it and they do the work on themselves and they appreciate that. Because here's the thing, right? If we're drinking a bottle of wine, or more, and we're sitting on the sofa, the dopamine reward center in the brain is massively getting lit up, but we're not having to do anything. It's happening just from us sitting on the sofa watching Mm. Netflix, right? So if we want to light up that dopamine reward center, we call it effort-based dopamine reward. So we've got to do something more than just sit on the sofa. And some people want to make the effort and some people don't. So if we remove the alcohol and we don't start doing the work and finding the other things that light us up, then we end up sitting there and going, well, life without alcohol is pretty rubbish. It's um, I'm really boring. There's um, and, and if we're not adding anything else in and we're not replacing it, then guess what? Life is going to be pretty awful and we're probably going to go back to drinking. Whereas yes. if we remove the alcohol and we start seeing it as this experiment of adding in lots of new things then all that happens and I've got clients who have you know they've gone back to uni they've changed jobs they've taken up horse riding they've gone into amateur dramatics they've written books they've gone back to um study courses that they've always done they've become interior designers like people's dreams come true Mm. because you don't have the alcohol holding you back anymore because alcohol keeps your world so small and keeps your mindset so small that's really important and such a great point Sarah is because when you're looking at sobriety, you're like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Especially if you yeah. drink every day. Yeah. Um, and if, if you drink every day, you drink every day. That means you've got to find something else to do every day. But a key is looking at all and even write a list of all the things that you could potentially do and then start ticking them off because you do have so much time when you first stop drinking. You're like, oh, my God. What have I been doing with all my time? And so if you can fill it with, you know, not like outrageous stuff necessarily, but just stuff, have stuff on that doesn't involve going to a bar and having drinks. It switches when you get so busy doing stuff, there's no time to drink, which is my situation and I'm sure it's your situation now. It's like if you wanted to go for a drink, there's no time. Too busy killing it at life. 
totally too busy and no time for a hangover no time to lie in bed playing candy crush my goodness yeah oh wow that's yep that I totally hear you and so for people who are coming to their sober curiosity I know you said you're a gray area drinking coach now how important is it for people to buddy up with either a coach or an online community or a buddy system to help get through those times that might be tricky I think it's the absolute foundation of success in sobriety, like hands down. I run alcohol-free challenges um, four times a year, and it's women only. And there's anything between 300 and 500 women that do it together at any one time. And we have our own private group. And the vibe and the energy in that group is simply incredible. Because the power of success comes in not feeling so alone. Because if you are if all your friends are still drinking, because as grey area drinkers, we tend to surround ourselves with other grey area drinkers. Of so course. if all of our friends are still drinking, yeah. if our partner is still drinking, it can feel so lonely and it can mm. feel so hard. And to have the support and connection of other women and, you know, social media is awful for so many reasons, but it's also blooming incredible. And it's what got me sober. And so, you know, like there, mm. there are so many benefits of particularly I've got women in rural communities in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And so to be able to pop online and to a Facebook group and put a comment and go, oh my God, I've had a really stressful day. I really want to have a glass of wine. And within five minutes, you've got 40 comments from people going, don't do it, go and do this, go and do this, play it forward, have a bath, go for a walk. And knowing that you've got women that are cheering for you, there is something so special about that. I definitely have this interesting relationship where I shut down my Instagram with tens of thousands of followers because it was just damaging my mental health. So I'm not active on social, but I have like the podcast has a social media account. And what I have found is that the algorithms are great because once you type in sober living or alcohol free or not drinking or quit drinking, everything in your feed that's suggested. Yeah. is And so for sobriety, that algorithm is actually so powerful because all of a sudden you've got this like laser focus on sobriety and every message coming to you is about how to live alcohol free. Here's a sobriety quote. Here's a forum. Here's a podcast. Here's a suggestion. Here's a link. And that can be so powering because I think sometimes the entrapment of social media can keep our laser focus small, which can be limiting. But when it comes to sobriety, if you look at it like blocking all of the other noise out, that can be a real positive for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, having that connection and having um, someone help guide you, like I say to all my ladies, like, let me do my job and and you have one job and your job is just not to drink today. Yeah. Let me do my job, which is to support you, to coach you, to inform you and to educate you. And every single day I do a talk with them on a different topic around alcohol and anxiety, alcohol and sleep, alcohol and our neurotransmitters, why moderation doesn't work, how we've been marketed at by alcohol companies. And so really starting to to take on that information, like staying inspired, I think is so important. And for me, in that first six months, I was reading the books all the time. I was listening to the podcasts all the time. I was watching the TED Talks and I was in the Facebook group. And, And it was doing those things that got me sober. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.